Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 13th, 2012, and my guest is Paul Tuff. His latest book is How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks. Great to be here. You open your book by saying we've been looking for results in the wrong places. By results, childhood success, uh, fighting poverty, helping kids escape poverty and get education. What do you mean we're looking in the wrong places? Um, well, I think that for the last couple of decades especially, we have been overemphasizing the importance of IQ and cognitive skills um, when we think about what helps children succeed. Uh, I think that's why we're so obsessed with test scores, both in terms of individual families and as a nation in terms of our education policy. Um, and the researchers and educators who I write about in the book are arguing for a different set of skills being at least as predictive of uh, success for kids and arguably more predictive. Now you start off the book talking about some recent results in neuroscience and psychology. And I have to confess, it's a, it's a, first, it's a fabulous book. It's one of the most provocative books I've read on education and poverty in a long, long time. But the opening of the book I had a little trouble with. You talk about recent results in neuroscience and psychology – uh, let's talk about those. What role do you think we understand between – what relationship do you think we understand between parental attachment and uh, ch- and a success in children as they grow older? Um, well, I think we are learning that there's a very strong uh, relationship between parental attachment um, and later success. And for me, the, the book, the study that was uh, made a big impact on me in terms of understanding that was this um, study that came out of the – University of Minnesota by these two psychologists, Alan Strofe and uh, Byron Egeland. Uh, and they studied a group of kids for um, many years uh, doing uh, attachment measures on them uh, and their parents from actually before birth, getting a sense of the, of the home environment uh, and then continuing on through adulthood. Um, and they draw what for me are pretty uh, persuasive connections between uh, early attachment and not just um, mental health and happiness, which I think has been demonstrated um, pretty well in other studies, but also long-term uh, economic effects, things like um, how likely kids are to graduate from high school. And how is parental attachment measured and, and what, what do you mean by that? What do they or what, is the, sure. what do the scientists mean by that? Yeah, so uh, it's a good question because I think parental attachment is something that uh, sort of means different things to different people. I think it's sort of just a common uh, usage of just being close with a close relationship between parents and children. Um, I think there's also this new, you know, like the there's a super attachment idea, um, like the mom on the cover of uh, Time magazine nursing her four-year-old. Um, that that's this this movement toward you know really intensive attachment between parents and children. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about or what these scientists at the University of Minnesota are talking about. Attachment as a, as a theory, as an idea in psychology, dates back to the post-war period, I think the 50s and the 60s, um, when these two psychologists um, started studying the relationship between parents and children in uh, the first couple of years of life. And the way that you measure um, attachment, the main way is this pretty 
strange test called a strange situation where um, at age, I think they do it both at 12 months and 18 months um, uh, in, a, in a lab setting set up to look like a playroom, uh, an infant and his or her mother um, play together for a while and then the mother leaves for a while. And sometimes the, the child is just on his own. Sometimes he's with a stranger. Uh, and then after a few minutes, the parent comes back and the, the important, um, uh, what the, the psychologists measure in terms of judging attachment is not what the child does when the parent leaves, because some kids get antsy and some kids uh, are calm about that. It's the re- reaction that they have when the parent returns. And if the uh, child is attached and connected and embraces uh, the parent or is happy to see him or her, that is an indication of um secure attachment. And and the numbers are that, you know, 60% of uh, children in the United States are securely attached. So it's not some sort of like elite group of super secure kids. Most kids are securely attached. The other 40% are anxiously attached. Um, there are different subcategories in anxious attachment. Uh, and different types of anxious attachment lead to, tend to lead to different sorts of psychological and other problems down the road. Yeah, I'm kind of skeptical of those kind of results, mainly because it's hard to measure you know, those things with precision and it's hard to control for all the other factors. And I know they do their best. They try to, uh, Brian Kaplan at George Mason university, uh, has, a an argument and we've interviewed, I've interviewed him on this program where he argues that parenting is relatively unimportant uh, and that twin studies bear that out. The twins tend to, when they're raised separately, they tend to turn out quite similar. What is your reaction or the scientist's reaction to those, to those kind of results? Um, so they take them on pretty pretty firmly. Uh, the the book that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in this is by Srauf and Eglund and others, and it's called The Development of the Person. Um, and they're definitely sensitive to those um, charges. They they were writing you know in the aftermath of Steven Pinker and uh, Judith Rich Harris and others right. who talked about um, the small importance of parenting. Um, and there was uh, I, I I did dig pretty deeply into this research and and, and was contemplating writing about it in the book, Mm -hmm. um, but decided not to because I felt like, um, uh, I I felt pretty, pretty convinced by the attachment research. And I felt like it wasn't an argument that I wanted to go through because it takes a long time to go through it. Um, but I do, I do think it's really important and really interesting. Um, but I, but I tend to fall inside of the attachment guys rather than Kaplan and, uh, Harris and Baker. Um, and, and, so the the research actually that I think that came out after the nurture assumption that I think is really important and that I, my sense is has not been addressed by um, the people who the make that argument is um, by this guy Eric Turkheimer um, uh-huh. and what he found that makes a lot of sense to me is that whether how much your your genes matter actually depends on your environment um, so for kids who are in a um, really positive environment a, a safe stable environment. Um, Genetic IQ actually does, I mean, genetics actually do make a difference in terms of IQ and other results um, because they don't, you know, their environment is not having any kind of negative effect on them. For kids who are in negative environments, for low income kids, um, the environment makes a huge difference. Um, so uh, to me, I think that's part of, of the the dispute and then that it may be actually more kind of a confusion than a dispute. Um, you know, for people like me who are really interested in what's going on with kids at the bottom, I think there's tons of evidence that the environment and parents make a huge, huge difference for people who are worried about like what little additional parental, um, 
behaviors or activities they can do to get their kid to, you know, Harvard instead of Princeton, absolutely. It doesn't, it, you know, there, there is not uh, strong evidence that those sorts of small parental behaviors make a difference. And yeah, genes I, really do matter. I'm pretty agnostic on it. I, I think parenting matters a lot for a lot of things. Uh, I just... I just wonder about the the two extremes of that literature. I think they're often uh, grinding their own axe and kind of oblivious yep. to the other sides. But let's move on to the, the to me the really what's the most provocative part of the book, which is the last eighty percent, um, which is phenomenal. You start off at, uh, talking about conscientiousness. Uh, what does that term in psychology mean? Why is it important, and how important is it relative to cognitive ability? Um, so conscientiousness, yes, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a word that we all use to mean something. And yeah. then there's also a official psychological category and the two overlap a lot. Um, it means, so it involves self-control. It involves, uh, like things like punctuality. Um, I think there's a certain amount of empathy to it, being concerned about others. Um, but it, but it is, it's mostly pretty similar to self-control, self-regulation, being able to control your impulses, a, a delay of gratification is part of it. Um, and it is highly predictive of positive outcomes. And in terms of psychological traits, it is the most predictive, I think, of, of positive outcomes of all kinds. I mean, certainly, you know, the more it's especially uh, it's especially a good thing to have in terms of things like getting through a lot of school, um, having a high salary, staying married. Um, all of those things are highly correlated. Staying with out of jail. Yeah. Uh, important things. Uh, is it how much of it is what you call grit? Which is to me the everyday word that I, as a teacher, a parent, uh, observer of life, I see the importance of grit all the time. I think when you're right. younger, when you're younger, your SAT score, your grade point seems like the the way we determine hierarchy because that's the only stuff you got. As you get older, right. you realize those things don't count so much. They right. matter, but grit can go a long way. It sure can. Um, so I think they're different in, in, in a way that I think is really interesting. They're certainly related, certainly connected. Um, but the the work, uh, the, the scholar who I sort of followed through both the conscientiousness literature and the, and the idea of grit is this woman, Angela Duckworth, a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and she started out her, her scholarly career studying self-control, which again is quite similar to conscientiousness. Um, and she found that uh, in one famous study or famous in this world, uh, she found that if you take um, uh, middle school kids and at the beginning of the year, you give them a measure of IQ and a measure of uh, self-control, um, that self-control better predicts their GPA at the end, end of the year than their IQ. Um, so IQ helps a lot in terms of standardized tests. Uh, conscientiousness and self-control help a lot in terms of GPA because you, you're the kind of person who does your homework and studies for your tests and things like that. And you could argue, so Angela that, was, you could argue that's not sorry, very important. You could argue that's not very important. Um, <laughs> right. What's grades, that? grades, uh, grades are measuring this weird ability. In a way, grades are conscientiousness, uh, measures yep. in, in a certain obvious way. If you don't do your homework, sometimes that literally counts toward your grade. And yep. so it's not just that does it, that you don't prepare well for the test if you don't do your homework. So yep. th that's not so surprising. I think the more important thing is the later results, right? In life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That it that it makes a big uh, difference way down the road as well. That that the conscientiousness effect continues into adulthood. So anyway, um, Angela Duckworth became the sort of 
guru of self-control for a couple of years and then I think started to feel like it wasn't measuring all of the elements of sex, success that she wanted. There's something about self-control as just, you know, it's a little bit narrow and constricting. It's just about following rules and doing what's right. And, you know, it's like the classic square kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and that those people are not the ones who go on and, you know, start bands and invent Apple and uh, sure. computer and things like that. And so grit was this idea that she came up with. It was a, a, it certainly involved a lot of self-discipline, but also involved a large uh, degree of passion. Yep. Um, she defines it as passion in pursuit of a, uh, I'm sorry, persistence, perseverance in pursuit of a passion. Um, so it's somebody who has a very strong goal uh, and does not let uh, obstacles get in the way, does not give up, does not um, get distracted. Uh, and so she now feels like grit is the more important and more predictive um, of these non-cognitive skills. Uh, one other example uh, that you use in the book that I want to let you talk about, and, and then we'll talk about what the implications of these results are. You give this utterly fascinating example of rewarding kids for doing well on an IQ test versus not. Talk about how the, how the I, giving kids M&Ms uh, for right answers uh, change their IQ scores. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a very strange uh, test, and the relationship between that test and the conscientiousness literature, I think, is a little um, complicated. Uh, so this was a, a, a two tests that were two experiments that were done back in the 1970s, um, where they were trying to study motivation. They took some kids um, and gave them. IQ tests, right, which you're not supposed to be able to study for. You're, they're right. supposed to be this sort of pure measure of IQ. And the motivation they gave was the, the simplest, <laughs> um, most straightforward thing ever, which is they gave the, these kids um, an M&M for each right answer that they had. Um, and the kids' uh, IQ scores jumped by like 10 points. Um, and, and so so that's interesting, and, and I think what it suggests is that a lot of kids don't try hard on IQ tests, sure. right? I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that M&Ms actually increase IQ, right. but they would argue that some kids don't care about IQ tests, uh, and, and why should they? Um, and so they don't really try, and if they try a little bit, they, get a lot, they do a lot better. The stuff that I find so interesting about those sorts of tests is that if, when, when you do both in that M&M test and in later um, similar tests, when you when you uh, there are some kids. So if you give them a, if you give them a uh, test like that with no incentives, and then you give them a test like that with incentives, some kids will have that ten point jump, but some kids won't. And the kids who don't have that jump mostly don't have that jump not because they don't like M and M's, but because they were already trying hard. Um, and just for the sake those, of trying hard, exactly. They just you put a test in front of them. They're like, all right, I'll do my best, you know. Um, and then that is conscientiousness. Those are the kids who score high in conscientiousness. And it's those kids who aren't swayed by M&Ms who actually do better in life. Um, so, so yeah, it makes the M&M experiment kind of complicated because in the one hand, it seems like there's this great thing that we can change kids' IQ. And I think it does tell us something about incentives uh, and motivation and the fact that there, you know, we're sort of leaving a lot of IQ points on the table in a lot of classrooms that we, if we could find a good way to motivate kids that is a little more sophisticated than M&Ms, um, we, they could really do a lot better. Um, but it, at, at the same time, it still suggests that for kids who need that kind of external motivation, um, they've got, you know, that, that's still a problem um, because yeah. they're, they're not, they don't have this other skill that's going to really help them in life. Well, my memory of, of your result was it was actually more than 10 points. It was 18, which is a huge jump in, in IQ. It was 79 to 97, at least in one of the studies 
that you report. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and the incredible thing, I, well, you know, as an author, I know everybody knows your book better than you do. It's just it's just the way it goes. Exactly. <laughs> don't exactly. don't be embarrassed. Time ago. <laughs> but uh, what I found fascinating, and I thought this was an, a, a really a, a, a totally non-obvious and incredibly useful insight is that if you had to choose between the 79 or the 97, I think most people would say, well, the 97 is the better measure of IQ because that's the one where they, they were trying. And, of course, right. that means there really are 97s. How can You can't call them a 79. Right. But maybe the 79 is the right measure to use because that captures the fact that if they're not highly motivated, they just don't try. Right. And the exactly. people who – most of, there are a lot of things in life that don't get incentivized. You just um, – you either do them well or you don't. Right. And, and you know, I, I think – I mean, I, I do think that it's true that 97 is their real IQ um, and that that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. But I think it also says that IQ is not everything. You know, IQ doesn't yeah. matter as much as, as we think it does and, and arguably as much as conscientiousness. So to me, it, it really suggests that like if – I mean, in some ways that, that I, I feel sets – sets us off down the path of the whole book that if we could find a way to teach not you know not just to help kids do better on that one test but to teach it's conscientiousness a waste of time. to help kids develop a grit and self-control um, then you know we they've already got the intelligence these are you know then these are kids who are doing really terribly in school and, and they don't see the long-term incentives even though they're there if they were getting a 97 they'd be you know they'd make lots of money down the road, but they, they can't see those uh, incentives down the road. If we could connect them to those incentives, make them think, uh, make them understand how these long-term um, payoffs are really going to help them, uh, they've already got the IQ to do well in school. So that was my next question, which is I think most people understand and agree that, that grit, conscientiousness, self-control, delaying gratification, these are all things that help a person become more successful in life. And anybody who has children thinks about this, uh, or at least anybody who's read the literature like you have and I've dabbled in understands that these things are important. Um, it's not obvious that you can do anything about it. So where do you think we stand in that, in that, on that question? Uh, how can we, if at all, increase grit, conscientiousness, and these characteristics that, that do help people later on in life? Um. I think I think there's there's some pretty strong evidence that we can change these things, but I think you're absolutely right that we don't yet know how. Um, and and so in my book, I, you know, part of what I'm doing is is trying to point people towards some experiments, uh, experimental evidence, or some you know particularly innovative educators who I think yeah. are developing these skills. Um, but absolutely, we don't yet have a curriculum or a real methodology um, that's going to say here's how you boost conscientiousness scores. Um, I do feel like for kids who are um, struggling in school and, and especially for kids in high poverty neighborhoods, uh, I, I do think that giving them a talking, – talking with them about the importance of these character strengths, giving them a clear sense of how um, – Hard work and conscientiousness now is going to lead to clear payoffs later in in a, a language and a context that makes sense to them um, can have an enormous effect. I mean, in some ways, I think it's exactly what why all of these uh, high performing charter schools from KIPP to um, all of the ones uh, in the same mold. It's it's exactly why they're so successful. You know, they just get these kids to. Uh, 
become incredibly conscientious, conscientious and to work really hard. And they do it by being really good at motivating them. And, and, and partly that has to do with, um, you know, the sense of group identity and just all the, the kind of fun it is to be a student. Exactly. But I think it's also about, you know, very like on the walls of KIPP, there are posters explaining, you know, the the economic data about how much uh, your salary will increase if you get a BA. Um, And I think that's a pretty abstract concept to most kids. Um, But I think, but I think it's it's pretty pretty compelling when you look at the numbers. Do they believe Um, it? I think they do. I mean, I think a lot of things that we tell kids, they just and you remember yeah. you were a kid once. I, I we mean, just I, don't believe I think, them. <laughs> right. I think, I think that alone, I think if you go into a classroom and say, uh, okay, here's the data. You get a BA. Here's what you're going to make. <laughs> you don't. Here's what you're going to make. That's probably not going to do it. Um, but I think in the context of a, you know, these more powerful motivation techniques that Kip uses, this group identity and, you know, wall-to-wall messaging, um, I think that that message is also really uh, powerful. And, and that without it, I think that all of that other stuff becomes kind of empty. If you can say to kids, this will lead to real success um, and and you can do it and other people like you can do it, that is not something you hear a lot and not something you see evidence of a lot when you're growing up in a high-poverty neighborhood. Um, and seeing that, seeing that evidence um, and hearing that message, I think, is really powerful. So in my house, uh, I have four kids. Uh, we basically don't watch television during the week at all. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have cable because... My three boys will watch um, intramural volleyball competition between um, Division Three uh, athletic managers. I mean, they they will watch anything competitive that's sports related, e- right? ESPN Seven, correct? ESPN, right? Yeah. Exactly. They, they'd like the all ESPN cable package. So right. because yeah. because of ESPN, and I have a similar disease, so both for myself and for them, we don't have the cable package. We don't have ESPN. Today is Thursday. We will not be watching the Bears-Packers, which I'm sure we would all some subset of us, or if not all of us, would watch some, if not all of, right. if we had access to it. And they're not going to be going to a bar to watch it. So, you know, I've restricted them from that. I worry that that has not made them more conscientious. It's made them more excited to go off to college where they can watch ESPN 27 hours a day. Uh, yeah. What's the... Do we think there's anything there uh, that in terms of long-run effect? Or is it – I worry – not worry. I think it's just the way it is. Isn't a huge part of this just genetic? I mean you look at kids. People, Anybody who has more than one kid knows there's a, a variance in grit, conscientiousness, competitiveness, which is another aspect of this that you don't talk about in the book. But I think mm-hmm. some people try hard on IQ tests because they want a high number. It makes them feel good mm-hmm. uh, the way they like a high score in anything. Um, Tell me how I'm doing. Uh, I, I mean, I think some of it is, sure. There, there, there are some kids who are, I think, some people who are more naturally conscientious, more naturally competitive, uh, more naturally, you know, sensation-seeking or pleasure-seeking. And all of that stuff has a big impact on who you are and how you go through life. People cannot be, the, 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 you know, Pinker's right. There is not a blank slate. Um, you can't mold people, absolutely. Um, but I think that you can change uh, you can, people can change. I mean, people change all the time. People, kids in middle school are not necessarily the way they are um, when they become adults. And I think that 
that I mean, one of the things that I, I'm persuaded by is the mindset research. Um, this idea that you know can sound kind of touchy feely. That if, but but I think it has pretty strong evidence behind it that if when kids believe that they can change their intelligence, they actually do better. They work harder. Um, and in some ways, I think that's similar to the, what we were just talking about—the message that you can actually succeed if you go to college. Um, it's just not some. It, I think for a lot of middle school students, especially, they hear the message that that they're never going to change, and they believe it. And so I think there is something positive about giving kids the message that they can change. The other thing that I'd say, and and this is maybe a little bit outside the realm of science and, and, and slightly more in the realm of anecdote, um, Angela Duckworth talks in, I think, really interesting way about um, the word habit. Uh, that uh, she, she quotes William James as saying that basically character is just a fancy word for your habits. Um, and she thinks that's a really positive thing to say to kids because when they when you talk about character – Often kids think, you know, the character is something that's fixed and can't change. But habits, you know, like you can change your habits, right? If you bite your nails, you can stop biting your nails. Uh, it's hard, but you can do it. Um, and and I think in lots of ways, that's what's going on with, with your, you and your family and ESPN. Like there is something – I think there's something uh, I I think it's very a positive thing. Like it's a positive thing to to for kids say like you know we're we're not going to get in the habit of doing this. We're going to restrict ourselves from doing this. I think it partly it just you know gets them out of the habit of like every day I come home and I watch sports, uh, which I think is is a useful pattern to have in your head. And partly I think it it gives them a lesson in conscientiousness. Like oh I can actually choose to deprive myself of something. I um, mean of course they're in the in the moment they're going to complain and feel incredibly wounded by it. Um, but I think that practice of like oh I'm I'm delaying gratification. I'm uh, I'm putting something off. I'm denying myself of something um, if for a reason. That's all good stuff to practice. It doesn't mean that people are going to be you know, perfect, uh, perfectly conscientious when they go through life, but I think it's a positive thing. Israel Salanter, 19th century rabbi who started uh, what's called the Musser movement in Judaism, which is about character improvement, he, uh, I think he would agree uh, the character and habit are, are interrelated, but he also said that it's easier to learn the, the Talmud than to change a habit. Uh, learning mm-hmm. the Talmud is very hard. Uh, mm-hmm. He meant the whole thing. He didn't mean sampling mm-hmm. it. And uh, right. I think every adult who's – when I look back at the habits I've broken, the few, and the things I've improved on or that at least I wanted to improve or they were actually – are there actually improvements? I don't know. But things have changed. It's not obvious what the mechanism is that made those things happen. And I think it's a – it points to your point about uh, we don't know how to do it. There are some people who can do it. There are people who inspire, but it's not a science. It's definitely not a science. But I I mean, and this is all just uh, kind of um, levels of uh, of, uh, matters of degree. But but I, I, I tend to think that people can change themselves pretty well like i think i think there's there is um i i mean i think about my own life i I think about the people around me there there are certainly patterns that people get into that are very hard to break but at the same time i feel like uh, i don't know anyone who doesn't have in their life uh, a habit that they've broken or a pattern that they've changed and you know it takes work and it takes reflection uh and it takes a little sacrifice um but i think people change all the time as Mark Twain said, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it a score of times. It's it, changing habits for a while is is relatively easy. It's changing them for good is, I think, dramatically harder, and we don't know we don't know that much about it. You're right, but at the same time, I mean, like 
a lot of people have quit smoking in the United States in yeah, the past uh, 20 or 30 years. I did it once. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I think there are other habits that, that people change in terms of like in society, like we all wear seatbelts now, you know, it, we do sometimes um, get into habits and, and the big ones are harder to change than the little ones. But um, I think there's some, there's something about the little ones that can be uh, somewhat inspiring. So those, that implication, the implication of that is that change and improvement comes at a very personal level unless at a top-down societal level. It's a big – the implication is there's a strong role for personal responsibility to play in making each of us and the world a better place. Are you comfortable with that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anyone can change without, without, I mean, I don't think you can change anybody else. Absolutely. But at the same time, I think in the context we're talking about, which, which is for me about parenting and about education, um, I think that it is also important to look at the evidence that, uh, Adults can help children change, absolutely, and that a lot of this, yeah, very sort of personal psychological um, transformation that can happen happens for kids anyway, and usually happens in relationship with adults. So uh, whether it's a parent or a sports coach or a teacher or a mentor, um, when kids make changes – Certainly for the better, but arguably also for the worse. Um, it's usually not 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 under the influence. I mean, not just because you know someone a, a parent is telling them what to do, um, but in a relationship with a an adult, um, they are getting somehow motivated to change. It's I think it's very hard if you're a kid to just change your life on your own. Some kids actually do it, um, and that's always kind of amazing to watch. But usually it's in this kind of relationship, and I think and and so I think that that especially for kids. Um, who are living in adversity, uh, coming from high poverty neighborhoods. It's, it's one of the things that I think is important to think about in terms of when we start thinking about the public policy implications of this, because when I've seen them change, and I think there's some uh, experimental evidence of this, but I think it's mostly my sense of it is just through the reporting yeah. on what I've watched myself. I think that, um, yeah, I think it's always done through, through through sort of close relationships. It's the reason that I get so anxious about these like credit recovery programs for the kids in these schools where they, uh, you know, they fall behind on their credits and they go into, they end up going into a classroom where there's just a bunch of other kids all staring at computer screens, clicking a mouse, like answering quiz after quiz and then someone you know in arkansas says that they've completed uh ninth grade geography yeah. or something right um and so i'm skeptical about that for yeah, lots of reasons in terms of actually content um, but i'm really skeptical about it because i feel like what those kids need and if they're the sort of kids who can't complete american history in the class what they need is is a connection with a teacher right um and so finding ways to do that i think is is can be a little bit complicated, but I think it's it's there's lots of evidence that's it's exactly what those kids need. Yeah, and one of the you know it's an interesting thing is a lot of excitement, and I'm excited about it also about online education efforts that can improve edu- the educational process. But as you point out in the book, uh, schools are about a lot more. And growing up is about a lot more than conveying and understanding information, uh, which is yeah. a lot of times what a computer screen is good at. You might get some understanding and knowledge, something a little deeper than information, but those intangible things you're talking about aren't going to be there. Right, and, and I'm, I get excited about that kind of uh, online education as well, but I think it, it's clear that, that that stuff works best if you've already got conscientiousness, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. And 
And so, uh, you know, there's already this kind of conscientiousness gap if education continues to move in that direction. I just worry that it's, it's, it's going to increase that gap. Now, in the old days, uh, people used to argue that one of the virtues of sports was that it builds character. And I think they meant that word in a character in a very rich way. Um, yep. How you treat others, uh, failure, dealing with failure, dealing with success. And you don't talk about sports in your book, but you do talk about chess. Uh, you could call it a sport. Yep. It's definitely a competitive yep. activity. It's not uh, aerobic most of the time. But um, – Talk about what you learned. It's an extraordinary set of stories in the book about uh, some chess programs in America. Sure. Um, so I just want to say, talk first about sports, and yeah. I, abs- I absolutely take your point that that you know sports coaches are are one of the groups of people who I think do this better than anybody. I give people um, the motivation to change and, and give them a clear set of tools to develop these character strengths. I think it happens all the time, and and so I happen to pick chess instead of football um, because I found this chess teacher I wanted to write about, but also because I think that that even when we think that this is true for, you know, that, that, that sports builds character, um, we think of it, I mean, it's a physical activity, right? The sure. fact that you can also do this, that this is also happening in something like chess that we think of as the ultimate intellectual ability, um, I think is also really telling. So the chess team that I followed is the Intermediate School 318 team in Brooklyn, um, a middle school team. And um, right now, when you look at at uh, chess results at any national competition, the kids who mostly win chess tournaments are rich kids, kids from exclusive private schools, kids from um, competitive exam schools, or kids from parochial schools. Uh, and that's true in every grade except the middle school grades, uh, and that's and for the last few years, and that's because IS318 wins everything every <laughs> year. Um, and this past uh, spring, they actually, after my reporting was done, they won the National High School Championship for the first time, which is quite remarkable considering that none of them <laughs> are in high school yet. Um, so they're really good chess players. And, and so I set out a few years ago, just when they were at the beginning of their winning streak, to try to figure out what was going on. And, and I, my first instinct was that there was some trick, you know, that this was somehow a selective school that was um, getting all the smartest kids from all over the city. Um, But it's not. It's a pretty regular uh, New York City public school with a pretty big um, majority low-income population. Um, And the kids who excel at chess are not necessarily the quote-unquote smartest kids in the school um, And when you look at their standardized test scores. So I think that what what's happening is that they are using these other skills, these non-cognitive skills or character strengths. And I think that is because of their teacher, this woman named Elizabeth Spiegel, um, who is a great, great teacher. And I think would will remind some, some people of, you know, football coaches <laughs> because she has that same sort of um, – uh, gruffness um, and intensity and, and sort of, I think, a combination of um, caring very much about the kids and wanting them to succeed, uh, but also not babying them. Uh, yeah. She reminded me of my eighth grade teacher, Miss Kaneen, at Muzzy Junior High in Lexington. If anybody out there knows uh-huh. what happened to Miss Kaneen, she was a life changer for a lot of, of – for me and lots of students because she didn't coddle us and – she used the full grading scale. She didn't. F wasn't low enough for her. You could get an M. You could get an M minus, uh, and you could get multiple A pluses. You get an A quadruple plus. But she she needed more range. But anyway, just thought I'd get in a plug for Miss Kinney. But yeah, tell us more about her. And uh, sure. So so and 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 what she. What the thing that I came to conclude about her teaching style was that it came down to this this 
one particular ritual that they have, which is after every game at a tournament or even in the classroom, if win or lose, you have to sit down with um, Ms. Spiegel and go through your whole game. Move by Phenomenal move. scene in the book. Um, and she, you know, I, so I would sit there in some of these, and, and these are middle school kids, you know, it's like <laughs> tiny kids with enormous backpacks. Um, and, and so I was expecting, especially when kids lost, that she would be sort of like, oh, Good you know, job. you tried hard, yeah. you did your best, it's just a game. Yeah. Um, there's another one coming up. And she, she was, she, she's mean, like she really <laughs> is tough on these kids. Uh, and she'd be like, why would you make that move? How long did you take to uh, think about that one? You know, that was a terrible move. If you're, if you're going to play like that, you can just go home. Um, just saying, you know, really mean things to these kids, uh, but, but not, you know, but, but not just picking on them, not trying, not belittling them, not trying to make them, I mean, maybe trying to make them feel bad, but in a temporary kind of way. Um, and to my surprise, the kids loved it, you know, um, and I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but, but I was, I think I had sort of taken the lessons of self-esteem to heart yeah. that like, if you, if you can wound a kid's self-esteem and it's going to be incredibly damaging, but of course, you know, right. All athletes can tell you this. who have had a great coach. All musicians who've had a great, uh, teacher can tell you this. What you want more than anybody is, is a teacher who is paying close attention, um, to your strengths and your weaknesses and your, and not letting you get away with mistakes and pushing you, um, to, improve yourself. And in chess, that is exactly what kids need to succeed. This kind of um, repeated feedback. Not just uh, chess. You, you know, <laughs> oh, exactly. Every, not everything. Just you right. need, you need certain, the feedback certainly. and you need to fail. Right. You, need, you need to play people better than you, not just win every time. And Absolutely. And but in chess, in chess, I think what's what's remarkable about it is how fast you can improve. And I think <laughs> I think that's true. And uh, yeah, I absolutely agree that these methods work for everything. But chess, just because the feedback loop is so fast, you, you know, you you lose your game. You sit down with Miss Beagle. She goes over exactly what you what mistakes you made and what you could have done differently. And then you got another game in half an hour. And you know, you do that seven times in a weekend. Um, that is an incredibly effective way to learn things. You know, and I think that it's that that if if that part of it wasn't there. Her like actually getting them to look very honestly at their mistakes, analyze them, figure out what they could have done differently. Um, I don't think it would happen. You know, I think kids would just get stuck in a rut and they'd stay at the same rating level. But kids' ratings uh, shoot up all the time on this team. Yeah, I think um, it's another point where I think relevant for the um, discussion of online education. We don't like to admit it, but some great teachers are great because they have a unique ability to motivate an individual to want to please them. Uh, it's an yeah. external motivation that's become um, frowned on by Alfie Cohn and others who suggest mm-hmm. that that's not going to last. And yet I think it helps build the habits that we're talking about. And amazing scene in that book when uh, over after a success, she, she cries uh, yeah. out of joy because that's part of teaching too. It's not just the student who has that relationship. A great teacher is uh, deeply rewarded when they see their students learn and and get up off that floor and succeed. Right, and not and, and I think it's telling that what made her cry was not the the kid who won the whole championship who you know was the best player on the team it was the um the kid who a had had improved the most and b who who she had helped improve that she could see uh him learning things and using things on the chessboard that she herself had talked to him about yeah it's got to be an amazingly satisfying thing for a teacher incredible story um before we leave this section i'm just going to mention that there's a poem by james dickey we'll put a link up to it 
uh, that captures this idea of grit and coaching and inspiration and parenting. It's called The Bee, B-E-E, and it's dedicated to the football coaches of Clemson College, 1942. Uh, if you're interested in, out there in that poem, if you like poetry, it's a beautiful poem. Uh, Great. And it captures some of this. Let's move on to the public policy issues. Uh, I found out about your work from a New York Times Sunday Magazine article you had a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Obama and po- versus poverty or Obama and poverty yeah. versus versus. And um, let's start with how you opened that piece with President Obama, or at least it's a story in the piece about President Obama when he campaigned in the Chicago neighborhood of Roseland. Uh, what happened after he became president? What did he talk about when he was there, and and what did he what happened afterward? Um, just to clarify one thing. So the, I don't think he ever actually campaigned in Roseland. He was in Roseland in the eighties as a community organizer, oh, I'm sorry. but the campaigns, the campaign speech I was talking about was, um, in 2007 in Anacostia, which is a Roseland like neighborhood. Okay. A different bad neighborhood. But he was talking, he was talking yeah. about these, this tragic, tragic situation in America where there are neighborhoods that appear to be neighborhoods of hopelessness and yeah. poverty didn't always equal hopelessness. It just used to mean sometimes, at least, you didn't make as much money as some other folks, but you had a different kind of life, of course, but you didn't have despair. Uh, And this is about despair. So talk about his campaign and then what happened. Sure. So, so uh, yeah. Uh, so I've been writing about poverty for a while now, and and I'm I'm very um, influenced by the writing of uh, William Julius Wilson, the sociologist from the University of Chicago, um, who talks about neighborhood effects and the and the especially the effect of concentrated poverty um, and how in the 1960s and 19, especially the 1970s, um, poverty concentrated in American cities in a way that it hadn't ever before in American history, uh, and that had devastating effects on the people who lived there, um, on the neighborhoods themselves, and I would say especially on the children who grew up there. Uh, and so, President Obama spent some, or pre-President Obama, young man Obama spent some key uh, formative years in one of those neighborhoods, Roseland in Chicago, uh, at a particularly, and I hadn't hadn't realized this until I went back and looked at other literature from that period. It was just uh, this period in the late 80s in Chicago where things were just falling apart <laughs> at an incredible rate. That, that was partly, I think, to do with crack coming into those neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, this was just when Mayor Washington died. Um, but I think uh, lots, of, lots of people, I think, who were writing about it at the time just felt like, especially in 1987, that's the year that, that uh, Obama mentions, things just felt like they were going off the rails in those neighborhoods in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and so so I I think that he was, as I, as I am, I think he was influenced by both his observation of those neighborhoods of concentrated poverty and the literature uh, around concentrated poverty um, and, and felt like a lot of us do, which is it is a public policy problem that we do not have answers for. You know, um, I think I think uh, you know Charles Murray makes a really good case in Losing Ground that the traditional liberal approach to uh, concentrated poverty um, in those neighborhoods did not work during that era, um, and arguably cannot work. Um, and but I also think that there's a there's a uh, the the solutions that he suggested and that other conservatives suggested haven't worked. Either I think none of us know what to do um, for those neighborhoods, and so in that speech that he gave in 2000, that Obama gave in 2007 in Anacostia, a few months after he um, announced his presidential campaign, he talked about his experience of being in Roseland, and he said, uh, talked about the experience of, of living in those neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, the way that I think is very rare, maybe. Um, 
it's never happened before that a right. presidential right. candidate would talk about this research. Um, talk about a log cabin, I, but they don't. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and and I think so. Part of the reason that um, presidential candidates don't talk about it is that it's very rare for them to have had the kind of experience that he did. And the other reason is because it's a place that it's you know if you're talking about public policy, uh, it's a it's a scary topic to get to because sure. you don't you know yet quite know what works. So he proposed some things that I I think and uh, thought and think were were really important, including most significantly this idea of uh, promised neighborhoods, this, this idea of expanding the Harlem Children's Zone, which is what I wrote my first book on, uh, and, and replicating it in other cities around the country. What is the Harlem Children's Zone? What, what's distinctive about it? So the Harlem Children's Zone um, is quite distinctive. It is a 97-block uh, neighborhood in central Harlem, and this man, Jeffrey Canada, has built this nonprofit organization, uh, mostly with philanthropic money, that tries to help every kid in that neighborhood to succeed. And by succeed, he means graduate from college, um, or at least have the opportunity to graduate from college. And he does that by by starting from the premise um, that is also, I think, William Julius Wilson's present premise and, and Senator Obama's premise that the lives of kids in those neighborhoods are so uh, complexly bad, um, not just sort of straightforwardly bad, that it doesn't make any sense to try to fix just one thing in their lives, um, you know, just fix their health care, just, the just fix their education yeah, yeah. and ignore everything else. And so he set out to try to plug all the holes in um, the safety net for those kids. Um, he started a, a few charter schools, um, more or less modeled after the KIPP schools. Um, he, but he also provides um, early childhood education, parenting, uh, a farmer's market, a um, health clinic uh, to try to address all of the needs that these kids have. Um, and uh, it's a hard... Um, uh, intervention to measure scientifically, sure. um, but my sense is that he's had uh, very positive results. Um, and so the idea of Promised Neighborhoods was to um, do a, a public-private partnerships like that or public philanthropic uh, partnerships like that in 20 cities across the country. And what happened? Uh, well, it did good. Uh, we do now have a Promised Neighborhood program. There are several cities that have received, uh, or quite a few cities that have received $500,000 planning grants from the Department of Education to apply for an implementation grant uh, to start a Promised Neighborhood. And there are, I think, three cities that have actually received implementation grants of $10 million or so. Um, and I've visited some of these Promised Neighborhoods, and, and they're, they're promising. Them are doing, <laughs> yeah, they are promising. Um, but they're, you know, the the... Uh, budget of the Harlem Children's Zone is, I think, something like $80 million a year. Um, and what President Obama talked about was spending uh, billions of dollars a year. Um, and that's that's a you know tough thing to talk about, uh, A, in an election campaign, and B, uh, at a moment of economic crisis. But I think you can really make the case that in order to make that sort of transformative change, you've got to spend that kind of money. And absolutely, he's not. He's spending about 1% of what he said he would spend. So for me... Um there wasn't anything novel in the fact that a politician didn't keep his promise. Uh, that's <laughs> that's yeah. um, dog bites man. Um, yeah. I, what I found uh, the, the thought provoker of your story was the realization, at, at least among some, maybe I don't think the president, but maybe not. Who knows? But the realization among some that maybe spending billions really wasn't the solution anyway. So it wasn't that – he hadn't followed through and kept his idealistic promise. It's that that idealism is not maybe so well-founded in reality that the government can step in and spend that amount of money and transform those lives. I mean we've been trying that approach for 50 years now. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I would be more more um, uh, susceptible to that argument if if it had been tried and failed. You know, I don't think that it was a case of, of Obama having some kind of realization that oh, this isn't going to work. You know, no, I'm talking about your realization actually. That, oh, my that, that it's more complicated no. than. Yeah, it, I know, but I don't. I I don't. I'm not sure. I have come to that realization. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I I still think I think promised neighborhoods is, is a really good idea because I think. And so you're right. I I do say at the end of the article that you know it is some of the problems that exist in these um, neighborhoods may be beyond the reach of any government to really deal with. But I think we haven't. We actually haven't tried enough. We we do we have spent lots of money, and and the case I would make is we still do spend lots of money in these neighborhoods. I mean, the the government is intensely involved oh, yeah. in neighborhoods, but mostly in pretty negative ways and pretty unproductive ways. Um, and and so I think that that uh, my vision for promised neighborhoods, which I think is still pretty connected to Obama's 2007 vision for promised neighborhoods, is that it doesn't have to be about more. Spending more money, and and uh, I, I'm I'm I you know I really I do take a lot of Charles Murray's points about um, the spending that went on in the 60s and 70s and how a lot of it was very counterproductive, uh, but I think that was more about the way the money was spent than that that it was spent at all. Um, Absolutely, and, and I think a lot of conservatives have have you know taken from him just the idea that like do not spend any money on poor people is just going to go to waste, um, and so I think you know and I think what Jeffrey Canada does is he's much more sensible about how to spend money in um, low-income neighborhoods than you know the war on poverty folks were uh, 20 30 years earlier um, and i think part of the reason is because he's part of a you know he's running a nonprofit he's the ceo um, he thinks differently than a government bureaucrat and and that was another thing that i'm i was and i am excited about when it comes to promised neighborhoods that the these were going to be these private public-private partnerships that we're not going to be about, you know, Washington bureaucrats deciding on how the money gets spent. So I'm still hopeful, or at least I'm still optimistic about it. I'm not necessarily optimistic that we'll ever spend the money, but I'm optimistic that it could make a big difference if we spent money more sensibly in those neighborhoods. Um, I may be wrong. <laughs> it may simply be uh, that it is uh, this, we, you know, we don't think that this is what governments should do. Governments can't do it. The problem is, if that's true, like I don't know what the solution is. You know, because I don't think, uh, I don't think that that anyone else has a good solution to those problems. And 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 they do keep getting worse. I mean, some things are getting better. Crime is better in the in many cities in inner in inner cities than it was. Um, but I think in terms of like family dysfunction, things continue to get worse. In terms of educational results, things continue to get worse. Um, the, the the kind of American ideal of uh, equality of opportunity simply doesn't exist for you know millions oh, and millions of and kids in those it's, neighborhoods. It's a terrible tragedy, but I think your book points to the solution. Maybe it's not the one you like, um, and maybe right. I'm overreading it, but your book highlights some extraordinary individuals, uh, people who care, uh, people with lots of grit, <laughs> trying to help others find grit, find a rock to hold on to in a very – bad stream that they're being swept along by yeah. and um we we know it works what but it's not one thing what works is letting a bunch of individuals creatively create their own organizations in a civil society voluntarily collecting money from people voluntarily and let those people blossom and bloom and the more government tries to solve that problem with your dollars and mine the less incentive people have to create those organizations and the less incentive we have to give to them. Mm -hmm. So I think to me, I'm an emergent Hayekian, mm -hmm. classical liberal, limited government kind of guy. Um, 
don't you think the lesson is we got to get the government out of the poverty business and let these other things emerge and the best ones will thrive and the worst ones will fall away? Uh, I, I hear where you're coming from, uh, but I just don't – I don't think the, the money is there. I don't think – I don't think – you know, it's like – there's not a market economy in helping poor people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, there's um, I no, mean, there's a philanthropic there's economy. There's no profit to be think... made. There's no monetary exactly. profit, but there's emotional profit. And, and sure. nothing is worse than conflating voluntary activity with business, right? Business is one thing we do voluntarily. But those right. organizations you're talking about, those nonprofits, which is just a word to mean – it's just a tax term, right? It's people right. striving to help other people, and if they succeed – they can raise more money. If they don't, they fail. And if and they get the rewards of, of seeing that satisfaction occur, and if they don't do it, they're not going to get the satisfaction, and they're going to do something else. Sure. Well, uh, so I I would say there's two two places I, I I take your point, but there's two places I differ with you. One is that that I actually think that the this this is one of the roles of government um, is to help poor people. That government is going to continue to help poor people. Um, it's just a question of whether they do it in a smart, efficient way that increases opportunity or not. And I think that that uh, unless we push the government towards being more smart and efficient in terms of uh, focusing on improving opportunity for children rather than anything else, um, they won't do those things. A government won't do those things and, and we won't those kids won't have an opportunity to do better. The other thing is that uh, I, I mean, I take your point. Philanthropy is a great way of helping people. You know, the reason that the Harlem Children's Zone works is that it has eighty million dollars a year, and that's just not going to happen in Detroit and Cleveland and uh, Youngstown, Ohio, because there is not. There, I mean, uh, Jeff has like four billionaires on his board, sure. um, and he's able to get $80 million a year out of them. Thank right? God there's a bunch there, of billionaires. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But there are a lot more billionaires uh, in Manhattan than there are in these other cities, and Jeff is really good at connecting with billionaires yeah. in a way that every philanthropist uh, is not. You know that it, his great his great combination of skills is that he cares intensely about kids, and he is a fantastic fundraiser. Oh, I agree. You and, need both. And, they're, they're, and there just aren't aren't you know like Elizabeth Spiegel is fantastic connecting with kids too as a chess coach. Um, she is not you know necessarily a fantastic fundraiser, um, and so I don't think that that you know million the eighty million dollars is gonna is gonna follow every. Good well, I, idea. I agree with that. Although I'd like to see uh, Jeff. Make, start some franchises, and maybe that's his next move. But uh, I'm right. sure his time is scarce. He's a busy guy, and he's having enough trouble yeah. just keeping his own thing in Harlem going. Right. Um, and, uh, and and I mean, you know, and, and that is exactly what Promise Neighborhoods was supposed to be, is franchises. And so it's a slightly different vision of franchise than, than what you're describing because it is, you know, franchise with the government's involvement. Um, but I, I, I think there's a model there in that public-private partnership that could really work. Well, I think I think it's wrong to think the amount of money is the key. Uh, I think you got to have some resources, but I think um, the biggest mistake we've made in, in anti-poverty and in education is assuming that more money means more results. We know that's not true, so it has to be true that it's how the money is spent. And I think fundamentally, it's extremely hard for government to spend that money well. I, I applaud your idealism in saying we just need to make them spend it better. I think that's a challenge um, that may be too hard to to conquer. Um, I hear you. I hear. You. I'm happy to agree to disagree on that one. Okay. My guest is t- today has been Paul Tuff. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.